On Final Straws and the Cycle of Abuse, M.M. and B.G. August 14th, 2022, continued. Last night, I saw Jesse for the first time since October. Ten months had gone by since our last encounter. We didn't discuss why. Trigger warning. Scenes of domestic abuse. This weekend is the anniversary of me realizing the jig was up that I had done as much changing and growing and communicating as I possibly could, that Gavin needed to do the same, because when he didn't, it hurt me. Two years ago today, I showed up at Jesse and Karen's doorstep unannounced. It was the first summer of COVID. Things had been really strict for a while, but that summer the restrictions relaxed a bit. This was before the second wave came along, and then the third, and then the fourth, and then the fifth, I think. After that, we stopped counting. So I was allowed into their home on that tragic day in August, which was a good thing because I couldn't stay in my own home just then. It had become too scary. Hey, I said when Jesse opened up the door to my unannounced visit. I'm not okay. Can I come in? I didn't wait for his answer, just brushed straight past him, his face, his look of surprise. I let myself into the living room with no explanation and started to cry. They gave me water and snacks and weed and told me everything would be okay. It was a terrible time this time of year two years ago. Part of me is tempted to write the play-by-play -play for you. I still remember it practically second for second. I remember how my body and brain just sort of stopped, how I realized I couldn't pretend anymore, how I couldn't pretend that what he was doing was okay. I couldn't pretend it didn't hurt. I couldn't keep pretending. I remember slumping down defeated onto our kitchen floor, numb to the world, numb to everything. It was a day like any other day when he was a jerk to me just like normal, but it was the insult that broke this submissive servitude, one insult too many. The final straw was when he scolded me for not making him lunch. The funny thing was, I wanted to make him lunch. I lived to make him lunch. So I had offered to make him lunch and then stepped out onto the terrace for some fresh air just before going back inside to make him the goddamn lunch. And that's when he scolded me and my world just came crashing down. Eventually, I picked myself up off of the kitchen floor and made myself go to Park La Fontaine. When I left, I didn't tell him where I was going or what I was doing. When I was there, I didn't answer any of his texts, nonchalant at first, then increasingly concerned. Of course, he didn't voice his concern, not with words, just with emojis and stupid commands that I didn't care about anymore because for years I had prioritized my love for him over all else. And now, on that day, I had started prioritizing the love I had for myself. I wished the two loves could be compatible, but I realized that if they weren't, he had to go. Mistress helped me see that, actually. On a different park bench, later in the day, after I'd le left a letter and snuck out of the house again, I cried it all out on the phone to her. He's not nice to me, I said lamely, in one of the biggest understatements of all time. What do I do? She didn't seem surprised. Think about yourself, Lorelai, she said to me, and it reminded me of that time way back when I first got to know her, when she lay me down and told me that I was powerful, that I just needed to find my power, and the other time when she had commanded me to love myself. Think about yourself, Lorelai, she repeated. Where do you want to be in five years? Where do you want to be in fifty? With or without him, what do you want? 
That's when I realized that when I was an 80-year-old woman, I could leave, live peacefully with the memory of being a consenting BDSM sex slave for a few years. As an 80-year-old woman, I thought, I could laugh at how that episode of my life had gone ridiculously, horrifyingly, broken consentingly wrong. But, I realized, if that same 80-year-old woman were still trapped in this nightmare, well, God help her. So that's when I got the hell out. Um, well, no, not exactly. That's a major oversimplification. <clears throat> that's when I started to get the hell out. It's when the puzzle pieces started to fall into place when I began to see the patterns in his behavior for what they were. The absence of his taking responsibility for his actions. The apologies that blamed it all on me. His unkindness. My isolation from friends and family. The way he used his master role to justify all sorts of hor horrible things that I had never actually consented to. The way he used my submission as a way to manipulate me into thinking my own feelings and boundaries were bad his consistent violation of my emotional, physical, and sexual boundaries. When you study domestic abuse, you learn about the cycle of abuse. One, it begins with a honeymoon stage, where the love is intoxicating and you're promised the world. Two, then there's the tension-building stage, where things start not to feel good. This should also be called the chip-you-down stage, the gaslight stage, the manipulate-your-insecurity stage. By now you're invested, though. You love your partner, and you think that so much of this is your fault anyway. If only you can say the right thing, do the right thing, it will go back to how it was before. Three. Parentheses. It is so unfair, you know, what the victim blamers say about how the injured party in a relationship with domestic abuse just doesn't have good self-esteem. We don't start out that way, you see. Not necessarily, anyway. Sure, if you're lacking in confidence, it helps. But everyone is lacking in confidence in some way, shape, or form. We all have insecurities. Part of the incredible thing about falling in love with a good person is that we can share those insecurities with our partners. We can be held and treasured for who we truly are. It's the most incredible feeling in the universe. But God help you if the person you love is an abuser. Because they will take your insecurities and they will y use them against you. You won't feel it at first, of course. That's why you make yourself vulnerable to begin with. But then, slowly at the beginning and then picking up speed, they take that thing you fear and tug upon it. When you feel the tug and cry out, they will tell you it's your own fault. You are insecure about that thing already, so that makes sense. You accept it. You are left thinking that if you could only change, the relationship wouldn't feel so ugly. The abusive environment is where the confidence goes to die. Three for real now. Then there's the acute explosion. Something goes terribly wrong. There's a verbal and or a physical outburst. This is followed quickly by the honeymoon stage, now dubbed the recapturing stage, in which the abuser says nice things, buys you presents, and promises it won't happen again, often while managing to insinuate that the problem was your fault or blaming drugs or alcohol. One day I'll write about Gavin's love bomb, his ultimate proposal to win me back. That was a doozy. As time wears on, the recapturing stage gets shorter and shorter. There is more tension building and more frequent acute explosions. I had known about the cycle of abuse for years, but it was fucking hard to identify it from the inside. You love your partner, you see, and it's not so black and white. Nobody is only bad. We all have our faults. You want to give your partner the benefit of the doubt. Love combined with doubt can be debilitating. Starting to speak my truth was a challenge of epic proportions. Gavin kept shape-shifting, from sullen husband to sad little boy to nasty man to soothing master. 
One time, he literally pulled me onto his lap in the middle of one of our worst fights. He petted my face to wipe away the tears and said, Sweetie, what's wrong? He knew what was wrong because I had just told him, loudly, with emotion, while he had poked every button he knew how to poke so that I would lose my shit and he could win the battle of who stays less emotional, so that he could sneer, stop being so dramatic. Dazed and confused at the abrupt change in tactic, I leaned my face on his shoulder and let him hold me. Everything's going to be okay, whispered the man who had just made me feel like dirt. Don't worry, he crooned, and I let him guide me to bed. I could keep going with the play-by-play, how I talked to Mommy on that fateful day, to my brother, to Gail, and to Master, how I met him that night for drinks, expecting an apology, how there was no apology, just an off-color joke that made me wince. Then, as we went to sleep, he started issuing commands. I was too spent to submit to him, so I resisted. I understood then that he was trying to reassert his dominance. It was so stupid. All he needed to do was take responsibility for his actions. That would have reasserted his dominance as a man who was trustworthy, a master to be obeyed. Instead, he started taking away points. We kept track on the whiteboard on our wall. He wanted to get a reaction out of me. For once, I just didn't react. I didn't care about the dumb points anymore. He had promised me the game would be fair, that I would actually be able to earn prizes. He gave me the tiniest sliver of hope that submitting to him could be like it was in the beginning, when I got wet from the sound of his voice and he made me feel like the only girl in the world, when he made me meek in the, weak in the knees, when I would do anything for him. But the game didn't work. It never did, because no matter how much of a good girl I was, I was at the mercy of his whims. I would earn points painstakingly slowly, and then with one fell swoop, he would take them all away. That night, on his quest to prove a point, he erased a month's worth. I was apparently at negative 4,000. That night, I stopped caring and saw his actions for what they were, the petty tantrum of a child who has been given what he wanted for too long. A couple days of roller coaster rides later, I ended up back at Karen and Jesse's apartment because at home it felt like I was going to choke on the air I was breathing. Gavin showed up. I hid. Jesse took him out for drinks. Then they came back, door opening, the sound of my sweet drunk master. Gavin was always more affectionate when he drank. Here he was now on their couch, snuggled up to me. Still no apology, but at least there was hope because he was speaking to me now. On average, it takes seven times for a victim to leave his or her abuser before it will stick. We walked home hand in hand. On the way up the stairs, I said, You know, Master, we just have to be able to have the tough conversations, that's all. I get it. Sluts will be sluts, he said. I felt a pang, but chose to ignore it. After all, we had reclaimed slut as a good word, hadn't we? The mood was still jovial as I made my way into the bedroom to fold the laundry pile on the bed. Things seemed so promising that maybe we would go to sleep happy tonight. Then I heard his voice from the other room, and now it sounded darker, more dangerous. So we're always going to have to talk about things, huh? Well, yes, I said, stunned, because wasn't that obvious? We will, and that's okay. I don't remember exactly how the argument went from there. I just know it was violent and painful, every muscle in my body spasming as I tried to explain. The whole argument took place just because I had the audacity to tell my husband that every now and then a conversation would be necessary. So you want to take all the fun and joy out of a relationship, he asked bitterly. No, of course not, I said. I mean, maybe a little. If your fun includes hurting me, then I need it to stop. 
All I'm asking is for you to stop hurting me. That's when he proposed that we call off our subdom dynamic. It was a strange thing going from submissive to just me. Nothing had changed, and yet everything had. I no longer needed to do as I was told. I no longer had to define myself based on his definition. I felt like death, suddenly conscious of a year's worth of emotional injuries. I lay in bed all the next day, dragging myself out to work only late in the afternoon because I couldn't miss that one particular meeting. I felt like my body had been bruised all over, even though I didn't have any marks. I knew profoundly that I could never submit to him again. Meanwhile, he was completely confused. He had spent so long forcing me to only ever tell him what he wanted to hear that he couldn't believe what he was seeing. He was completely bewildered that I no longer wanted to spend two hours every evening massaging his feet. We went rockily along. It was tense but okay, and four days later I finally started to breathe a bit more calmly. That's when we had a fight like a wrecking ball that tore through our condo. I guess I'll go get a new submissive, he told me. We had just had a dinner together without incident, and I had dared to think we were okay. Now, this. You know, he continued, since you aren't giving me what I need. Okay, I said dully, if that's what you decide. Since that didn't get the reaction he had been hoping for, he began taking our wedding photos off of the wall. It took me two months to leave. I'm proud of myself because it could have taken a lot longer. One day I'll write about that process. It was intense. Five years prior, I had suffered a concussion, one that put me out of work for six months. Every day I had experienced an overwhelming dizziness, brain fog like you wouldn't believe. This was worse than the concussion. My brain hurt from everything I could suddenly see. It hurt even more because of the sway he still had over me. He may not have been my master anymore, but he was still my husband, and I still loved him. Plus, I had just spent the better part of a decade putting him before all else. I had been trained to see things from his point of view. I suddenly realized now that his point of view was not, could not, be mine. And so all the houses of cards began collapsing. We experienced the cycle of abuse at lightning speed because now I was speaking up, calling his bluff. I was no longer tolerating his bullshit. Finally, we completed one last revolution of the cycle, the last one as cohabiting partners anyway, and I left. I got on a bicycle with nothing in my backpack but my laptop, a change of clothes, and my favorite floppy-eared blue stuffy. I headed to Gales with the intention of spending the night to clear my head. I never went back. My head is much, much clearer now. M.M. and B.G.